Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, music nerds. Well, I know I just wrapped up season six a couple days ago, two days ago, in fact. But today we just got the news that David Lindley had passed away, and I thought it would be a good idea to um, pull up the interview that I did with him back in 2019 and let you all have a listen to it. Uh, for anyone that missed it, this was originally a two-part episode, and um, as listeners will know, I've had to yank out a lot of the um, reference songs, so the episodes have become shorter, and podcasts in general are allowed to be longer now than they used to be. So I'm combining those two episodes up into one here. And uh, this is my entire conversation with David Lindley. So, you know, he was a huge uh, influence on me. He was a fantastic musician, both as a session guy. And what I knew him as more was like a live solo performer. Um, I saw him going back into the 90s, um, once with Ry Cooter, and then a couple times with Hanny Nasser, and then once with Wally Ingram. And he made these three records that to me were just like incredible and so inspiring for what I was doing and kind of got me into playing Weisenborn, which is still to this day kind of my main instrument in a way. Um, anyway, if you ever get your hands on those, you can't find them on Spotify or Apple Music, but they're out there. Maybe you can find a CD copy on eBay or something, but I highly recommend it. There's uh, three live records. Two of them are from the same kind of thing, same kind of time period with him and Hanny Nasser. They're live records. It's called One's called Playing Real Good, and the other one's called Playing Even Better. One's blue and one's orange, and they've got handwritten covers. You can't miss them. So go find yourself a copy, and it's like the most happening, wise and born, slide guitar, oud, a little bit of banjo, all this stuff and playing amazing songs and crazy arrangements and just, yeah, huge tone. It's acoustic, but just the tones are massive. And for me, it was really inspiring stuff. And then there's a third one that he did a few years later with Wally Ingram, and that one's also really cool. That's called Twango Bango Deluxe. And I also got to open for him once in Vancouver. A friend of mine had a club there, and uh, he was a huge Lindley fan and brought Lindley into this uh pretty small restaurant to play a couple of shows in one night and I opened both shows and we got to hang out a little bit and he was really nice and and uh, you know a really encouraging inspiring guy to be around and that was just a really memorable gig for me I loved it so go listen to some Lindley go find one of those records if you can if not you know his regular releases are also awesome and this is my uh, conversation with him from from 2019 part one and part two combined and thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Here we go. Hi, how are you doing, Steve? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Oh, good. I'm down here in the rain. It's probably good when that happens around there, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, sometimes it is. Yeah, it, it, everything grows and then everything burns, you know. It's, <laughs> That's how it goes. It's pretty much. Honestly, like with you, I, I'm not 100% sure where to start because there's so many facets to your career that, that, I, that I'm a fan of and that I'd love to hear about. But maybe we could start by talking about yourself as a player and some of your background. Um, like I, I know that you were kind of a young champ on the bluegrass festival scene in the early days on banjo and fiddle. But, and I've seen you play fiddle, but I've never seen you play banjo. And somehow I can't really imagine you playing like traditional Scruggs oh, style banjo. Maybe you could talk about that, you know, your first instruments and what, what kind of music you were playing. Yeah, it was my first instrument. Um, well, it goes all the way back to when I was four, you know, and I, I had a violin and, and a piano and had access to a piano. And I used to, you know, bang on that and, and, uh, you know, and then I got, I got a hold of my dad's, uh, ukulele yeah. and, and, uh, I started playing that and he, he said, uh, you know, well, we'll get, we'll get you a, a baritone ukulele. So I got a baritone ukulele. And then, then from then on, it was, you know, one thing after another that had strings. So it was pretty good. You know, I, I, the banjo was, uh, um, I'd been listening a lot to the Kingston Trio, and there was a guy uh, at the high school where I went who was really good on the five string, and he he studied with uh, uh, you know a bunch of different teachers and stuff, and he he got uh, Pete Seeger's uh, style down pretty well, and I, I learned that, and then from then on. Okay. I met a guy named Walt Pittman. Yeah. Who who was the guy who invented the uh, Scruggs tuners. Oh. Yeah, he was he was a friend of Earl and he would he would Earl would send him um you know tapes and and stuff and he would he would learn all, all these things and and I I met him down at Bernardo's guitar shop in East LA. And uh this guy this Kind of Santa Claus guy came in with a, a a brown banjo case with a pink lining and it had a Gibson Master tone in there, and he says, "Are you sure you want to look at this?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, break it out." Yeah, you know? so, and that and that was it. It was a one of those defining moments, and and I, I picked that thing up and I, I saw all these things and. And that's when it started out, and I, I kind of, I listened to everybody. Yeah, I had, I had, yeah, I had access to records, and and. Um, what was your access to those? Like, were your parents really into music? I was Barry and Grassman music. Uh, they they were a big music store in Pasadena, okay. and I used to work there teaching banjo and fiddle and and all kinds of different things. And, and, and fiddle, I, I just kind of naturally picked up. Um, I wanted to win the, the fiddle contest, so I I learned a couple of tunes and and uh, did that. So I, it worked out pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, so you were picking it up really fast, and were you, and you were going in competitions and winning them. Yeah, when you were six and seven years old. No, 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 no. no this, this was about fourteen, and, okay. I, and I was from fourteen years old on, and I, I had access to a guitar and. And then, uh, and then I got my own, my own, uh, 
My uncle was uh, was Ricardo Montalban. You know the guy. What? That, yeah, yeah. He's my uncle. That's crazy. Yeah. Your dad's brother? Uh, no, he married my dad's sister. That's crazy. Yeah. That's it. He helped me get my first guitar. <laughs> Just, you, you have a guitar? He used to play guitar and sing at Christmas. Really? And uh, yeah, he was really, really good. So he he said, "Oh, we'll we'll, we'll get you. We'll get you a guitar." So they, my dad and and he got together and and uh, plotted and schemed, and then I ended up with a guitar from Bernardo's Guitar Shop in East LA. And um, and I used to go down there all the time. I'd I'd buy tenor banjos and have. Pilo put a, a neck on him, mm-hmm. you know. And it, he was like a tech down there that you were in cahoots with. Yeah, okay. yeah. He was he was really he, he was Candelario Delgado's brother, Porfirio Delgado. He was a guitar maker, um, really really good guitar maker. Jose Feliciano plays one of his guitars, wow. and he was he was a real really good guitar maker. He could make anything. So he can make five string neck. Oh yeah. Oh, I do those all the time for Mr. Chase out in Claremont. And I said, oh, good. So there's this interconnection. That's kind of when it started. Okay. Was that, uh, yeah, the, the banjo 12-string guitar kind of thing. The, the interest of the banjo to you was more through, like, the Pete Seeger folky kind of sound than the Earl Scruggs bluegrass? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was until I met Walt Pittman, and then I, that's when the three finger style, you know, that took over. And I went and I got a, uh, I had a, uh, a bunch of records of, of stuff of the old time, real serious old time Roscoe Holcomb yeah, and, and uh, Obrey Ramsey, Doc Boggs, Doc Boggs, and and. Uh, you know, Snuffy Jenkins and all, all these pre-bluegrass banjo players. So I, I, I learned all that stuff. And then I heard uh, Eddie Adcock, the country gentleman, yeah. and he was, he was, yeah, he was just amazing. And I, I learned as much of that as I possibly could. And then, were you actually playing in bluegrass bands? Yeah, we had a bluegrass band. Um, we had me and Dick Hargraves and and um, a couple of different people, and and we ended up with uh, Richard Green playing fiddle. Okay. And then it it, it progressed in di- different members of the band, and it was Richard Green. He'd play fiddle, and and uh, he, he would win the. A fiddle contest, and I, you know, yeah. and we got to be good friends. And he showed me a bunch of stuff, and and he learned from Scotty Stoneman, okay, who, who was one of the best best player, yeah, the Stoneman family, and he was one of the best players around. So I I, I got as much of that as I possibly could, and then and I, I learned off records, and and, uh, and people would show me different things, and there was a guy named Mike McClellan. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of local whiz, and he he could play everything. He played every instrument, and uh, and he would do shows and at this place called the Cat's Pajamas. Oh yeah, in in Arcadia. Yeah, and I I go down there and I'd hang out out there. I would talk to Mike and and uh, he showed me a bunch of things. Tony Jackson's fiddle, amazing, <clears throat> Boeing style. 
which was the, the bluegrass yeah. style that everybody is. And I, I, I learned that. He said, oh, you got to learn this. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll learn that. And uh, and then I, I just took it and ran. And uh, Were you finding that, that you were drawn more to the banjo than the fiddle, or were you just into everything? I was into everything. Okay. So you, and yeah. when, when you were playing with those bands, would you swap around and like you'd play fiddle on one song and banjo on another? And Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. What about like flat picking guitar? Were you into that at all? Um, not really. I, I was, um, I'd go see Clarence White all the time. Nice. He was with a, yeah, he was a, uh, the Kentucky Colonels yeah. or the Country Boys. Uh, before they were the Kentucky Colonels, they were the, the Country Boys. And that was Leroy McNeese on Dobro, Billy Ray Latham on, on Five String Banjo, Roland White uh, played mandolin, and, and uh, uh, Clarence White played guitar, and uh, Eric White or, or Roger Bush played the bass. And I used to go see those guys all the time, and, and, uh, and they were South El Monte. I, I go and see Roland White all the time here. He plays at the station in and uh, yeah. yeah, he's still, he's still doing it, man. It's incredible. All these years later. Yeah. He, he was, uh, when Clarence got hit by that woman in the, uh, the parking lot of that club where they were playing mm-hmm. as when Clarence died. Right. He was, he, he saw the whole thing. Oh my God. Can't imagine. Yeah. Can't imagine. Yeah. That was really awful. Yeah. Yeah. But, the White Brothers were were the uh, kind of bluegrass standard. Was he about your age, or is he a lot? Old? He's he's older than you, right? Yeah, you know, I I'm not too sure about that. Oh, okay, uh, I'm I'm 74 now. Okay, I think he's he's still probably he's a little bit younger than me. So you were seeing those guys, and and they were kind of your your peers, I guess, and and you were playing around a lot. Yeah. Um, were you yeah. were you uh, like touring with any of those bands at the time, or was it just sort of local stuff that you were mostly involved in? No, it was it was more or less local stuff. I was going to high school, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of had to stick around. And and uh, during the summer, I'd I'd go play, and we'd play different places: the Troubadour and the Ashgrove and and uh, Cat's Pajamas and stuff like that. We did we did a thing every night there. So wow. every night cast pajamas. Amazing. Yeah. 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 It, it turned out, you know, it, anybody could get up and play. Yeah. So, you know, they would do that. So can you like your music over the years has involved so many influences more than just, you know, string band and bluegrass music. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about like how old were you when you started hearing things like reggae and dub and blues and rock and roll that that has also been a big part of what you do? All of that stuff came later. It was bluegrass music and old time music was first. And, and um, you know, I would listen to everything. I listened to Ravi Shankar and, and Uday Shankar. And um, when I was really little, I, I was like, you know, six and seven years old when I heard Ravi Shankar or uh, Uday Shankar. Is that Ravi's brother or something? Uh, it was his uncle. Oh, okay. And Ravi started out playing with the, with the uh, with his uncle's ensemble, and and then from then on, he you know I heard the first World Pacific record, and and uh, my dad got it, and then I got it, and and uh, I got it through the the uh, music store where I worked. 
and that was it. It was as soon as the, the you know, the sitar and the vena, and then I said, oh, what's this other instrument, the vena? Yeah. Okay, and I and I picked that up, and then I I, I listened to uh, Muhammad El Bakar and and everything, you know, oud oud music from from the Middle East, and. Uh, yeah, everything just went all all at once. You know? So where were you hearing, like, where would you have picked up recordings that featured the Oud? Like, where, where would you even find those records at that point? At the music store where I worked. So they actually had that kind of stuff in circulation at that point. Yeah, and there was a guy in there uh, who would order stuff, and they had a whole section on that. And then, of course, they checked out Tower Records. And Tower Records had all kinds of stuff. And I, I'd go in there and I'd just make a deposit. <laughs> I, I wouldn't take anything out of there. I'd just go in there and give them my, all the money I made. <laughs> and, and, I, and I would have records. Man, I had all kinds of records. Yeah. And, and, um, and I'd listen to them and try to figure out what, what was going on. And, and, um, and then... That was when the kaleidoscope started. Yeah, right. So kaleidoscope kind of came out of your 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 immersion in bluegrass and and like when I hear the early kaleidoscope stuff, which is you know some of it's sort of available in various forms. It's hard to know what's official and what was what were bootlegs or whatever. Like I don't know what you intended yeah. to come out, but you can you can hear a lot yeah. of it now. But you were like I can hear your playing in there, like on the oud and and uh and guitar and stuff and like recognize you totally even at that point when and i'd imagine you were like 17 or 18 at that point um yeah just yeah how about so can you tell me a bit about how forming that band and what what you were trying to do with it and like it definitely was a was a rock band at the heart but but you were playing all this cool crazy world music too and so maybe tell me a bit about that yeah i had um i could check out different kinds of guitars and, and uh, amplifiers and stuff at the, this music store, Barry and Grassmick. And, uh, and I, Standell, uh, was, was really, really good. I, I, I checked out those things, yeah, those the are early Standells. And, and, uh, I got to know Frank Garlock who worked down there uh-huh. and, and he, uh, turned me on to all kinds of amps and, Sandell tube amps, the old ones that were made in the in the garage in yeah. in, uh, in El Mati, Yeah, a lot, a lot of the steel players were using those, right? Like the Western Swing guys. That yeah, that was the best steel amp there was. The uh, single fifteen, yeah. and then you, you have the uh, preamp in the top of the amp, and then in the bottom of the amp on 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 rubber kind of uh, insulation, you'd have the the amp section. Okay. Of the amp, and those those things were the best pedal steel amp in the world. Yeah. So I noticed, like, there's some, even some footage of you guys playing, and you're playing like I, I I think there's a song where you're playing a bazooki, and I can see that you've got in there, and like there's a volume knob on the bazooki. Uh, so you were probably doing that yourself, right? Like, were you taking like Diarman pickups and stuff and sticking them into those instruments? Oh yeah, we did everything. <laughs> yeah, we put. You know, the, the first piezo uh, electric pickups were um, Barkus and Barry. And, and when Barkus and Barry was a uh, uh, like a hi-fi store, oh. they had hi-fi stuff. In really? There. Yeah. H-I, yeah. H-I-F-I. Yeah. 
and they had they had that stuff in there, and and uh, Len Barkas was in the back. He was he was messing around with with all these different kinds of pickups, mm-hmm. and, and Frank Garlock turned us on to to uh, Len Barkas, and he would put pickups in instruments. We would take things down to him, and he would put pickups in them. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, this is good. Oh, you you know you ought to have one of these pickups. You know that you could stick on any instrument, right? You know, you, you know, and then they, then they did that, and they put this, uh, and they came out with the first uh, guitar pickup. I still have it. It's it's in a Gibson guitar case someplace, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like number two, wow. and it's just two pieces of aluminum with with a element in between it, and they're glued together, and and then you you bolt it down to an instrument, and it and it plays, you know, and then from then on, it was that that whole piezo uh, kind of pickup thing that you could. You could put on anything, so that that was a that was a real liberating thing for us. You know, you could put it on the oud or the bazooki or the saws, and and it worked out real well. So, so were you guys trying to elevate those instruments into like a rock band setting, or was it just yeah? So you were so you, so you were playing them loud. Yeah, I had my my uh, Gretsch solid body, and I had a. Uh, um, Gibson uh, fretless wonder uh, Les Paul custom w- with three pickups, and and, uh, and then we play oud and saws and and bazooki, you know, in with that stuff, and and with drums and and electric fiddle or harmonica and and, and all that, and and it worked out really well. Yeah, and we played in San Francisco and and Los Angeles and played all over the place, the Newport Folk Festival. In '67, I think it was, and and uh, mm-hmm. and it just it just went on from there, you know. Were you touring and stuff with that band? Well, most of the uh, we just kind of center in New York around the Albert Hotel, which was the tenth and University, and and we had a. Then we'd go go and play up in Boston, yeah. and then you know, in different places and stuff. But mainly, it was in New York, and and that was. Uh, Wow, it was it was a long time. It just you know, yeah. we kind of lived there, tenth and University at the Albert, and what we'd rehearse in the basement. And the lady who ran it was really wonderful. Okay, she let us rehearse, yeah. and, and and so, and we kept going, and and uh, got bigger gigs and and stuff like that, and then and then. Um, and then we stopped, kind of, and then uh, you know, different members of the band changed around and and got into a, a whole different thing. And then I, I said, "Oh well, I th- I'm going to go do this. I'm going to play with uh, Linda Ronstadt and uh, okay. Terry <laughs> Terry Terry Reed. Terry Reed yeah, and, yeah, ter- yeah. I, I went to England and and played with Terry. Yeah, can you tell me about what made you move to England after Kaleidoscope? That's that's sort of a. I heard Terry at the Sky River Rock Festival uh-huh. up up in Seattle, and I, I said, "Oh boy, this guy's good." Yeah, this guy is really good. And the guy and uh, Chesley Milliken was his manager, and Chesley, but we knew him from. 
from Magic Mushroom, which was a club on Ventura Boulevard. Okay. He opened up. Yeah. And it, it was where the Almond Brothers, uh, when they were the Hourglass, they, they, uh, that's where they would rehearse. Oh, okay. And, and then they, they played there all the time. And, and it was Chesley was a big, he was a big uh, center of everything. You know, it, it Everything he touched kind of turned to gold. So we we had him <clears throat> manage the kaleidoscope for a while, and then, and then he went to England and managed Terry Reed. And I gave him a call about the time the kaleidoscope broke up, and I, I said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd like to play with Terry." Okay, you know. And he said, "Oh yeah, that's good. That's what he said." Okay, <laughs> really? Uh, and, and, yeah, and you yeah. got the gig. Yeah, yeah, I got the gig, and and um, and we went on from there, and uh, we got uh, Bruce Rollins from the Grease Band, and, yeah. and uh, Chrissy Chrissy Stewart from the Pretty Things, and uh, and we played four. There's four of us. It was me and Terry, and and uh, Bruce and Chris Stewart. Yeah. And that that was a great band, boy. Now, that was that really smoking. Is, is there a record? Uh, you know, of that particular band, I don't know if, if that exists or not. I, I I haven't seen Terry in a while, uh-huh. and I would like to see if if recordings of that band exist. I don't think they do. Uh, the next band was was with Lee Miles and uh, Alan White, who is uh, oh yes. He played drums with Yes oh, right. okay. uh, after us, you know, and but that band that was the that was the, really the best band, and uh, Lee Miles played with Ike and Tina Turner, and and uh, Alan was just fabulous. He was he was great. Yeah. He and I, yeah, we we got into all kinds of trouble. <laughs> Boy, he, oh man, that's like <laughs> uh, like what 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 kind of trouble? Oh, it's bad stuff. You know, we went to Amsterdam, took acid on the Queen's birthday, and it was carnival. Oh my god! You know, you know what? I've been to I've been to Amsterdam on the Queen's birthday. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's un- unbelievable. And we we had a hotel. We were playing a, uh, a gig there uh, in Amsterdam, yeah. and and. We went early, so you know, it had a couple of days to kill. So we got into all kinds of trouble. Me and Alan, we went to this Indonesian restaurant, took acid. Okay, we're in an Indonesian restaurant and on acid, and he decides to sample the the condiment tray <laughs> with all this hot stuff from Indonesia, and he he got. He, he got. I've, I've eaten the hottest thing in the world, and he went into the bathroom, and he got sick, and it, it was this awful thing. I'm okay now, <laughs> and he came out, and we went out, and the first thing we saw was a neon sign shop. Uh-huh. That was the first thing we saw when we walked out the door, right next door, to the Indonesian restaurant was a neon sign shop, uh-huh. and I said, "This is going to be good." <laughs> So then we walked off into the night and we found the bumper cars. Oh my God. So here we are. Yeah. The the bumper cars with a lot of juice flowing through there. (laughs) And, and he, Alan almost got killed. He, he stepped off that thing onto the floor. They turned it off and, and, and then we, it was, it was downhill from there. Cause we went to the Paradiso club. I know it. 
Yeah, yeah. That's it. we went there upstairs and watched these guys play go <laughs> and chess and all uh, fascinating. <laughs> there, yeah, it was unbelievable, and it, it was. You know, he was a real bad influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was still that was still with Terry Reed, where you guys were both in his band. Oh yeah, okay. oh yeah, we were on Terry's band, and 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 we played the Paradiso then. Yeah. Uh, after the, that two days of of being insane, then we uh, we played the Paradiso, and we played places in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. And, so with Terry, really with good. Terry Reed, what um, like were you playing guitar with him at that point, like slide guitar and stuff? Or yeah, okay. yeah, slide guitar. That was the first slide guitar stuff. So tell me a bit about how you got into slide and like what you were into at the time, and you know that's such a big part of what you do yeah. now. Like maybe you could talk a bit about about that. Yeah, that that was a um, electric slide guitar. I I saw uh, when I was with the Kaleidoscope. This is towards the end of yeah. it. Uh, I saw Freddie Roulette play. Oh, yeah. And I saw him play, and I went, oh, holy shit. <laughs> this is really good. This is really good stuff. And he was, you know, you know Freddie Roulette. I do. You know how he plays. Yeah, he's... He plays all that Alvino El, Ray totally. stuff. Totally. And, and then he plays all, all this other stuff, too, you know. I want to do this. And I talked to him, and, and, and he said, this is what you get. You know, eight strings, that's a little much. You get a six string and, and then you, you, uh, a national, you get a national and, and you, you know, and he showed me some things, some different techniques and things. And I, and I said, okay, I, I got it. Oh, you got it. <laughs> I said, oh yeah, yeah, I got it. So I, I went and I, I bought this national uh, electric slide guitar down in uh, down in Hollywood I took it home and I, I shut everybody out and that's what I did for a long time and then I took it I took it to England and started playing with Terry Reed and and, uh, and that's that's more or less when it started at the end of the kaleidoscope the beginning of Terry Reed is when the, when the uh, um, slide guitar started and and then from then on and uh chesley was also friends with jackson brown yeah so i i met jackson through chesley milliken uh who was terry reed's manager and he was also he was connected with the grateful dead and was oh, okay later on yeah with him and then he was um he was connected with everybody so so when you say you were into getting into slide guitar through um through Freddie Roulette and he was showing you stuff like you're talking about lap steel here. You're not, you're not, you're not playing bottleneck at this point. You're playing lap steel. Oh no, I, I have never played bottleneck. Okay. I can't play a bottleneck. You got, you got your right cooter, you know, that's yeah. all you need. <laughs> yeah. that, that's all you need is right cooter on the bottleneck guitar. And that was it. And, and so I, I, one of the things about Freddie Roulette that was amazing is that he would play it like a lap steel guitar, and I went, "Okay, right, this is good. Yeah, this is a this is kind of a different thing, but I can do this." Right, right. And and so, and so I I picked up the six string and, and took it and played it with Terry, and then I played it with Jackson Brown, and then. If you were listening to records and like you must have been learning stuff at some point after Freddie Roulette had sort of put his 
put his mitts oh, into yeah. you. What like what were some of the records that you were learning from that were a big influence for you on the steel on the lap steel? Uh, yeah, uh, Earl Hooker. Yeah. Earl Hooker, he had that. In fact, Freddie played in this band, and he he was really good. And he, I got turned on to a whole kind of different world of of this Chicago kind of um, slag guitar and, yep. and and different things, and you know, Sacred Steel, and and I I checked this stuff out. And I said, this is really good. You can you can do all kinds of things. And then I I would depending on what Jackson would need in his, in his songs and all that stuff, I, I'd say, oh, I got something for that. <laughs> oh, I got something for that. I'll let me play this. And then he said, yeah, that's good. Okay, and then, and then we would do that yeah. for a while. You know, for seven years we did that. <laughs> um, so then, t- tell me a bit about your, your stint with Jackson Brown. Cause, so you came back from England with Terry Reed. You got a gig with yeah. Jackson Brown. He was just a like a kid starting out at that point, right? Like you were playing with yeah. him from the beginning, right? Yeah, right from the beginning. I, I played a gig with him at the Troubadour, and, and uh, I played with him at the... Um, uh, we did a gig at the Magic Mushroom in, in mm-hmm. Cambridge. Okay. Uh, yeah, Chesley started this club there, you know, the same as the as the club on Ventura, except really small. And uh, and then we played a gig there, and I said, "This really works good. I'll I'll, I'll be back pretty soon." You know, I was left England and, and went. I took my wife and daughter, and, and uh, who had come over. Mm-hmm. They, they were living in England. We were going to stay there. You know? oh, okay. That was the Vietnam War. You know, I says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, so um, we were going to live in England. And I said, you know, you get homesick and all that stuff. And I, I had heard Cajun music, you know, Doug Kershaw and all that stuff. And I, I said, oh, no, I want to know. We know we're going to do this. So I went back and uh, started up and. Got a gig with Jackson, and that was it. Yeah, cool. So, how much recording? Like, I know Kaleidoscope was doing some recording, and and we've talked about Terry Reed maybe not making a record. Uh, with Jackson, yeah. you started making records pretty like right from the beginning of his career. How much studio experience did you have at this point? I had pretty much studio experience. Terry Reed made a, a couple of albums. One of them was called River. And and we made that um, towards the end of that band, and and that was uh, at Olympic Studios and Island Studios, and I got to know Chris Blackwell. What was going on there? Yeah. And and all you know when you were in England in those days, sixty nine, seventy, and seventy one, uh, reggae was all over the place. Okay. And the and the whale Bob Marley and the Whalers they were just starting out. So I, I heard the early stuff. I got I got a bunch of reggae records yeah. in uh, uh, Trojan label, the yeah. uh, reggae label. They had a whole bunch of records, and I got them. What were some of your favorites? Oh yeah, um, Desmond Decker and the Aces. Uh, yeah, the, that that was the first thing I heard. And then I, I heard the Pioneers and the Rudies and the Greyhounds. It was a huge thing in England at that time. It had a huge impact on you because it's been a part of your music. Oh yeah, ever since El Rey OX. I don't know if it was before, but 
but you know, you hear it on those early El Rayo records and then it stuck with you. So that must've had a huge impact on you. Oh, it was giant. Yeah. I, I, I heard that and I went, Oh, that's, that's from, man, they sing just like bluegrass. Right. You know, these, these guys listen to all those radio stations there in Nashville and, and, uh, um, New Orleans. And they, they got a lot of the techniques of that. And a lot of that technique was bluegrass music. And I, I you know, these three-part harmonies and, and all that stuff. I said, oh, this is good. Yeah. Let's do this for a while. So I, I put a bunch of, you know, stuff together. When I was playing with Jackson at the, uh-huh. at the time, and, yeah. and he produced a record. It was that first El Rio X Blue record. Yeah, man. It's one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> and that was, a, I got a bunch of uh, musicians together, you know, from from all the people that I'd met in the studio and, and all, um, you know, I'd played on all kinds of things when I got back. And Reggie McBride on the on the bass and Ian, Ian Wallace I'd heard with Lonnie Mack's band. Nice. And I said, oh, this guy's good. This guy's rock solid. So I'd get him and, and get this guy... George Pierre Bonaparte, yeah. Babu, and got him. And he was on percussion, right? He was on percussion, and he w- he also played accordion, and he he wrote songs and stuff. Yeah, I, it was I had Babu on the timbales and timbalitos up in front, and then Ian in the back, and Jorge Calderon on the bass, and uh, Bernie Larson on uh, rhythm guitar, and uh, that was it. And then we start. We started that machine, and then that learned to feed itself. <laughs> and we went everywhere. If we talk specifically about that blue record, can you tell me what the sessions were like? Like, if you actually think back to the process. Uh, oh man, they were they were really good. It was it was based around Greg Ladani, who was yeah. was a recording engineer for Jackson, and and I. He said, "Oh, I want to do this. I want to do this album." So we did it in the studio where we do recorded Jackson stuff. Oh. Uh, rec- record one and uh, Sunset Sound Nuts um, Sound Factory on Selma. There was it was um, a studio run by Val Garay, uh-huh. and he and he and Greg are really good friends, and and Val had all kinds of really good equipment. And Greg was kind of the second engineer, and he he wanted to do this project. Yeah, the Sunset Sound Factory sessions; those were um, mostly overdubs, and the the uh, the actual sessions. Oh, actually, we did we did them in both places. We 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 experimented around a little bit, uh-huh. and and uh, we got the same sounds. Okay. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. 
When you guys were making that record, was it essentially a live, like a live performance? Like the band was all playing together, yeah, all in the same room and stuff. Like how the, the interesting thing to me is like they sound like they have a it, that record in particular has a really live energy, but it also sounds quite yeah. produced and like you know like kind of in in tune with a lot of other recordings that are of that era. So I'm just wondering like how yeah you know how, were you doing a lot of overdubs and and was were the sounds pretty live and raw or were you spending a lot of time on that kind of stuff it was it was essentially um we do the uh record the uh the song first and i would do a pilot vocal yeah. which ended up in a lot of cases being the the main vocal on it the keeper and um you get a lot of microphone leakage and then there were some tunes that you had to start from from scratch and record a different way uh-huh. you know and that and that was um you know, and then overdub on yeah. it. You know, I, I would overdub things and solos and, and and redo a guitar or one of those things, you know. And I, I had, I was experimenting with the Dan Electro guitars and mm-hmm. and, uh, and the chorus and stuff and playing with Ry Cooter. Yeah, right. And I, I said, oh, this is good. This is a good sound. Tell me a bit about your guitar tone of that particular era, like what kind of steel, lap steels you're using and, and amps, and if there's any effects involved and stuff. Well, uh, the amps, for the most part, were Dumble. Okay. Uh, I, I, used a, I used an overdrive special for the... Um, for the lap steel, okay, and and there was a national lap steel, and then I used uh, Rickenbacker lap steels, and then I I got turned on to Supro, yeah. which was which was a subsidiary of of National right. Falco, and I used those the Supros with the with the uh, legs on them. You mm-hmm. could stand up and play, you know. And then I used for guitar, I, I would use a a Dan Electro curly horn. Uh, guitar, two pickup guitar, yeah. the kind that came in the case that had the amp in it. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got one of those actually. Those are great. <laughs> oh yeah, those are really, really good. And we're using and the. So, did you use the case amp on the record? No, no, okay. I didn't use the case amp. <laughs> those I, are pretty I gnarly. For, yeah, they, they're pretty, pretty gnarly. I, I, I would. Um, I use mostly the um, black Fender Bassman. Okay. Pre CBS, I use a black uh, Fender basement head, and I I plug it into a uh, an AC30 uh, Vox AC30 bottom that had okay. these two special speakers in there that were really good. I used those and in, in uh, or a Dumble bottom which had two Al- Altex. Was Howard Dumble just a guy that you knew building crazy amps at that point? Like obviously he wasn't yeah. the the mega crazy elusive superstar amp guy now where his amps cost a hundred grand like he was probably just a guy at that point right yeah he was just a guy yeah yeah (laughs) the amp guy in santa cruz okay and then he moved down to sun valley and the prices went up you see they were really good was he was he um was he like experimenting with amps on you at that point like was he just getting into building well, yeah, he was just starting to build stuff, and he would listen to people play and how they would play, and then he would make them an amp, you know. Right. And uh, and it worked out really well because he was a guitar player, so he could he'd have you come over. Yeah. You'd come over, you bring your guitar, and and he'd listen to how you played and 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 
check out the pickups on the guitar, see how they worked, and you know, uh, um, say, okay, well, let's see, we'll put this kind of preamp in there and see how that works, and and you know, he said, well, okay, I'll, I'll build you one. So I, I would, I remember going in there with a black face basement. And I said, and I had another device, and I said, I want to put this device in this amp, yeah. okay? At, at the time, I was using the Blackface basement with a, a FET circuit in front of it. Okay. And I, I'd use, I was experimenting with preamps that would overdrive the preamp in a, in a black basement. Okay. So I... I Tried all different kinds of things: Roland sack tape recorders, and and uh, and cool Tanberg tape recorders. And I, I checked them out, and I, I put them into this. I said, "Oh, this is good. This sounds really good." Yeah. And and then he would he said, "Yeah, that's a good preamp." And he would put he put all the stuff together, and and the, the overdrive special came out of that so you're kind of you're kind of responsible for the overdrive special yeah nice yeah and it's one of those things that you know people in those days were experimenting with all kinds of of uh preamps and all kinds of you know things from from uh, projectors and and uh bell and howells you know yeah, Bell and Howell tape recorders and and all those different things, and then you put them in front of something that was pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And a um, and then I discovered a Variac oh. and a Variac. Yeah, you, you take those things and you, you turn them up until it was 121. You know, coming out of the wall, and you go, okay, that's good. Okay, and the tubes are glowing a certain color orange you want the tubes to glow orange and then you want to have just a touch of blue in there so they all that sounds good because a blackface basement was susceptible to the power coming out of the wall the sound that would come out of that and and that's one of the reasons i got the overdrive special was to kind of counteract that effect and and i got very axe and i got um you know, changing from, you know, I was obsessed with Fox AC 30 amps and they, they didn't run on, on 60 cycles. They ran on 50 cycles. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I said, I, what I want is a, is a cycle generator. I want, I want to be able to (laughs) take the power out of the wall and convert it back down to, to where it's supposed to be down there at 220. Yeah. And on uh, uh, 50 cycles, and he says, oh, that's, that, that's $20,000. No, you can't have that. <laughs> no, you can't have that. Lindley is not going to get a cycle generator. <laughs> so, so I settled on, I said, blackface basement, okay. So I put a Variac in there, and I made sure that it, w- it would stay at the same power out of the wall. Yeah. So, uh, and I'd adjust it. And, and it turns out that, that Eddie Van Halen was doing the same thing and <laughs> Billy Gibbons was doing the same thing. And we figured out that, uh, we needed a little more input yeah. to amplifiers and stuff like that. And that's and Dumble at the time was doing a, a experimentation with different amps. Mm-hmm. So I say, Oh, this is good. This sounds really good. This is what I want, you know. And I and I take it in there, and he he pushed together, and I, yeah. you know, and I 
turned out to be this monster. You know? Amazing. Another tone, I guess, going back a year or two um, into the Jackson Brown thing, but like one of your your most famous solos really is is the running on empty thing, which was interesting yeah. too because it's kind of a it's like a live record, but it was all new material, so it's a real cool concept record. Um, what about in, in, at that time? Um, like, what what would you have been using for the lap steel sound on those records? Same kind of thing, or well, that was a. Uh, a Rickenbacker. Okay. And that was one of those, those, uh, Bakelite bowling ball yep. plastic guitars, you know, yeah, and, sure. and I took, I, I took off a couple of the covers mm-hmm. on the, the little resonation kind of chambers on there. I took a couple of those off and it sounded, it had the sound that was, that was wonderful. And I said, okay, this is good. And then I, I, uh, tuned it up to a, so it's real tight. Yeah, really super tight. So I turned, and Rickenbacker is a short scale. Yeah. So you can kind of do that. You can kind of, if you use the right strings, and they'll last maybe three days, and the first string at least, <laughs> you would, uh, you know, I had, I had a whole lot of different Rickenbackers and, and National and Supro and different different guitars. I had a Gibson that had a brass bridge. And I, I would use these different guitars and I, I had, you know, like six or seven of them yeah. up there at one point. And I would use, they were all different tune, different versions of the same tuning. Yeah, okay. I always used the same tuning, which was a, which was like a first position E chord. Yeah, yeah. On a guitar, yeah, I used that tuning, except I, I would tune it up to F, G, and then all the way up to A. Whoa! Oh, seriously? So it's open A tuning, but like an open D style open tuning, just tuned way the hell up. <laughs> yeah, it's the open D tuning. Yeah. It was uh, starting at the bottom was D, A, D, F sharp, A, D. The first string was D. Yeah. Okay, okay that, that's the acoustic tuning that you use okay and then on electric it was it was that same relationship i said it was f and then i would i have one at e one at f one at g and then one at a wow that is high yeah that's really high and and uh you couldn't do it with a national because it was the scale was too long so yeah. you do with a rickenbacker you have a short scale okay and tune that sucker up and then, <laughs> and it would just about ready to explode and that's what you're hearing on there okay cool and amps and stuff like that were you using the dumbbells on those tours yeah yeah okay yeah 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 just plug into a foot volume control and the foot volume control into the into the uh dumbbell yeah and uh, sometimes i would use um, something in front of the the foot volume control, I, I would use a purple peak or one of Dan Armstrong's things, or I would use a... What's the purple one? Was that like a, was that a compressor of some sort? Purple peaker was a, nobody really knows what it was. I had nine <laughs> of them. I got one left and it, and it's, it's it just does something to the sound. Oh, you know, okay. it's, it's basically a Stratocaster. Okay. It's it's the overtones that a Stratocaster amplifies. Okay. So you put that in there. Yeah. You put that in there and, and into the circuit, and that boy, that makes a hell of a sound. I th- I think that's what I was using on running on empty was the purple beaker. 
Oh, okay. Wow, I got to check that out. So it's like a mystery effect. You don't even know what it does. <laughs> yeah, they were little boxes that Dan Armstrong used to make. Yeah, I remember. And yeah. I, yeah, I used to hang out with him. There was a, a orange squeezer. Yeah. He'd make them, so you plug them into the guitar, and they plug your guitar cord in there, and, and you turn it on, and all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> They're ju- they were just the best, you know. And then and a lot of different effects. I used a um, um, phase shifter, MXR yeah. phase shifter, and then a, a red box. I'd use one of those uh, overdrive kind of compressor limiters, the red box MXR. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what Lowell used. He said I used to take an LA two A out of, on the road, and they they proved to be just not roadable. So he actually he said, had one in his live rig, an LA two A. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He had Crazy. an LA two A. He said that's that sounds good. You know, so put it in the amp, put it in the in the powertrain, and and he would use that. And he said, ah, oh, this this thing just won't hold up. It's not rotable. Here's something that's better. <clears throat> and he showed me this little red box, and I said, what is that? Oh, it's an MXR uh, compressor limiter. And you put that in there, and you just adjust it around until you get the sound you want, and there you go. Yeah, so simple. Yeah, solo. And when you go to take a solo, you just stomp on that thing. Okay. And there you go. Almost like using it just like as a as a boost pedal more than anything, but also a compressor. Yeah, it was a boost pedal, and then you you would be able to to uh, you know compress it and and uh, limit it down and and a line level limiter you know like an la like just like an la 2a essentially yeah. what it is but but reliable right roadworthy yeah roadworthy and and yeah. uh, lowell really did some experimentation before he ended up with that so i was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your your um sessions have been a big part of of your career as well but it seems to me like maybe it's not your favorite thing to do because you've always tended to go out on the road more than be a session guy. Like I'm pretty sure if you yeah. wanted to, you could have just stayed in LA and been like the session kingpin of, of the eighties and nineties and two thousands. Right. Yeah. I, I kind of, I decided to, to go on the road. I, I, I like that interplay between the audience and the musician. I thought that was really a good thing. So I, I remember I ran into a guy named David Cohen. Uh-huh. David, David was a finger pick guitar guy. At the Ashgrove, I mean, he he would teach classes and he'd do all kinds of stuff. And he was a great guitar player. And he, I remember talking to him and he said, you know, I, I, I decided, I decided to stay in town and be a session musician. That's what I wanted to do. And, and he would have three sessions a day and he would seven, uh, maybe five days a week or maybe six days a week. And he did like Lee Sklar. Yeah. And, and he would go do these sessions and he said, I want to go out on the road like you're doing. And can you take all my sessions? <laughs> I said, nice guy. I said, no. <laughs> yeah. And he said, Oh, oh, well, you know, so he, he really wanted to, you have to kind of balance that stuff off, you know? I recorded with a lot of different uh, artists and, and 
and stuff. And I, I, you know, I still playing alive is the thing that uh-huh. that's really it. You know, yeah. and I, I, I decided to just keep that going and, you know, occasionally do sessions when I'm home. And In those days, like in the eighties and nineties, I would imagine you could have been doing sessions all the time and you chose not to. Oh, so yeah. what, the ones that yeah. you did do, you know, like there's so many great ones, but you did a lot of records with Linda Ronstadt and um, that, yeah. tri- that trio record with Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt and Dolly Parton is oh, yeah. incredible yeah, too. Exactly. Um, yeah. That, that for me is from what I can here really now I might've missed something on one of the El Rayo records, but, but that's the first time I ever hear you playing the Weisenborn on a record. Uh, is that true? Um, there was one El Rayo X album that had, uh, it was El Rayo live. Okay. It was a pink, uh, it was a pink album. I don't know if, I think it was released in Japan and in, um, and in Europe, it was a, a pink brick, wall album cover on there and it had um you know all all the information was in in uh, sharpie <laughs> and and it was and on that was the first weisenborn thing so was weisenborn something that you just discovered later or were you always playing it and you just never recorded it that was the first thing that was i would say one of the first uh instruments that bluegrass instrument it had bass unlike a dobro right so so in the in the i was messing around with it a little bit you know yeah when i worked at barry and grassmack i saw a weisenborn uh against the wall and i said what the hell is that <laughs> so i picked i picked the thing up and it was this guy named ron middlebrook who is uh is a really old friend of mine he played rickenbacker uh electric guitar and he was a guitar teacher at Barry and Grassmuck and it was one of his and I checked that thing out and I said holy shit this thing sounds really good I I checked it out and I went oh okay you know a little light went off in my head I said yeah yeah use this this is a great thing so I, I kind of cataloged it and then later on I went out and bought one okay and uh, and that's that's the acoustic version of of the uh, lap steel. When I hear that record, the trio record with Ron Linda Rodstadt and Dolly Parton and Emily Harris, there's a solo that you do on there that for me, like when I was learning Weisenborn and like lap steel and stuff, I just I was so drawn to that solo. I think it's on "To Know Him Is to Love Him." I don't know if you remember that song, doing that song or not. Yeah, I do. Okay, so to yeah. me, it sounds like you're plugged in directly like I don't hear any acoustic sound at all. Were you using it that way in the studio? And am, yeah. I, am I right hearing it that way? Yeah, it was a, it was a sunrise pickup. Yeah. And, uh, it was George Massenberg recording that and I, uh-huh. and we plugged it in. We did, uh, we had a microphone on it and we okay. plugged it in direct. And then we had, uh, I think there was an amp in a room. I think oh, okay. it, yeah, there was all three of them. So oh, cool. he he made he made a mixture of all three, and he said, "This is the only pickup that I've ever tried out that it will hit twenty six thousand cycles." <laughs> he says, I, "My my uh, parametric equalizer actually works on this instrument, so we'll make use of that." So, and it, and it really did. Those old Sunrise pickups they had the. They had 26K in there, all the way up. Yeah, up into Dogland. 
Yeah, that's up there, man. 26. I don't know if, like, can we even hear 26? I guess yeah, George Massenburg yeah, can. Yeah. Yeah, we okay. can. Yeah, Mass at least he could. You know, I mean, I was on my way downhill about that point. You know. Okay. Um, and so, like, on a on a session like that, would you like that was big time in those days? Like, that was as big as it gets for like pop that's stardom. That's as big as it gets. Yeah. Um, were you doing those solos and things as overdubs on tracks that were already there? No. Sometimes I would do it at the time. You oh, know. Okay. Yeah. And then, then Linda would say, oh, you can do better than that. And, really? And, yeah, oh, yeah. And then Dolly Whoa. would chime and say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can. What was the dynamic like with those three? Because, I mean, if they were actually in the same room recording at the same time, that must have been a total trip, man. Those are like three was, of the greatest singers ever. Oh, yeah. It was fabulous. They they figured out how to do it. And, uh, and they, they would practice. It, it was constant doing stuff. Uh-huh. You know, we were in there and they they would work on tunes in another room, you know, while we were learning the song and getting ready to record. And, and, and then we would record the track with, uh, and one of them would come out and sing the song. So we would know what it was like and, and yeah. maybe keep that, maybe keep that take and then add the two harmonies onto that. And but it was, that was one method and there was you know a dozen methods of recording these songs because they're they're all pros i mean they've been they've been recording stuff and doing you know making albums and stuff for years dolly parton you know for one you know linda ronstadt you know she came out of the womb singing and emmy lou harrison oh forget it yeah, it was it was it was fabulous, and it was the is one of those times where you know you know make a mental note of this because this this only happens once. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, I I I did that. You know, I got to hang out with with uh, all these great musicians. And, and, um, a uh, couple others that that come to mind, like so as we as we mentioned, like you kind of just left that life behind a little bit and, and turned a bunch of stuff down, but, but you did play on records with Bob Dylan and, and I know you played on like a Curtis Mayfield record. Do you have a, a oh, favorite yeah. session or two that you could tell me that, that really sticks in your mind as being like super inspiring and just a great experience? There was one, the people get ready. There's a training coming with Curtis oh. Mayfield. That was on the Sunday's program was David Sanborn's program. Oh yeah. And he, and he had played sax with James Taylor, so I got to know him really well. And uh, and and he got a TV program. He says, "Come on, TV and and play some songs." And Curtis Mayfield is going to be on there too. <laughs> so I said, "Oh boy, yeah, oh boy, I'm there." So I flew to New York and 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 did that. It was fourteen hour session. <clears throat> and. People get ready. There's a train to come. And Curtis Mayfield says, uh, you want to play on this? I said, are you bet? <laughs> I'll do that. And he said, he said, this, that's, uh, yeah. So let me hear it. Let me hear what you got on, uh, on lap steel, you know, uh-huh. up on legs, lap steel up on legs. And he says, that's the same tuning I use. No way. Yeah. I so see. He- it was a, <clears throat> it was an F tuning. And he said, this song is in F. Crazy. So I said, I said, oh, that's really good. This guy can play <laughs> all my stuff. And he said, oh. And I said, play, let me hear what that sounds like. And he said, this is good. 
this is a good thing. So we did that song. Uh-huh. And he turns around to me. Curtis Mayfield turns around to me in the middle of the song and he says, play the solo, David. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> oh, wait. No, 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 that was it. I said, and, and there was this big neon sign that came, and we did it with an audience there. There was an audience sitting in bleachers up there. Okay. <clears throat> and and this, this sign came on in between me and the audience that was in the bleachers. It was a neon sign that said, don't screw up. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And it was, I and it was good. It was a good solo too. You know, I it was. You know, he liked it. That was the main thing. I mean, all, throughout all this time, terrifying. It was terrifying, but it was one of those things. You know, I said, if I'm gonna go down, you know, 11 million people are gonna watch this thing. Yeah. I, if I'm gonna go down, I'm going down in flames. Yeah, man, go down in style. That's it. So I, I said, okay, here we go. So I played the solo and it turned out really good. He loved it. He thought it was good. Amazing. And then I, I yeah. And, and, and all, all that, uh, and then I figured out it was an old thing. I'd been doing that all along, all of, mm-hmm. all of the stuff that, that mindset going in there, playing the solo, you know, people will remember this sound. So you better make it good. Yeah. So, I will, you know, and I, but that moment, that was a big thing because all the stuff, you know, afterwards came in there during the solo. I I didn't, didn't see or hear, you know, you're just in the zone. No, I was in the zone and and I said, okay, now I know what this place is. Now I know what the zone is and, and you you don't think whatever you do, don't think. Yeah, don't think, and it'll it'll come out really good. Amazing. Okay, yeah. I'll just do that. I'll just do that <laughs> for the rest of my life, and and everything will be fine. Don't think from Dave. Uh, yeah, don't think. Yeah, that's it's a real. It's a big. That is a big thing. Yeah, it is. With and music, you, man. You, but you have to do all the preparations first. Right. Yeah, you have to you have to make sure everything works. You have to get the best sound you can get, and then you then you take that right on out. Yeah, and and do it for the people, and they and and, and it works out really good. And also for Curtis Mayfield or Jackson Brennan or Dolly Parton, of course, you know. Yeah, and they they will they they like that. Can you tell me a bit about your relationship with Ryan Cooter? Like, I'm obviously a big Ryan Cooter fan as well, but um, you've had a pretty long-standing thing with him where, you know, you guys yeah. have made live records together. You've, you've been on albums of his and the soundtracks. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how how you guys connected and, like, found a way to work together. Because, you know, a lot of the... it's Some of it's similar territory. You don't do the same thing as he does, but but it's in the same ballpark. So maybe talk a little bit about that and your experiences, particularly with the soundtrack stuff. I'd love to hear about the soundtrack sessions. The, the uh, I'd known Rye for, for a long time it, from the banjo fiddle contest and then from the Ash Grove, and mm-hmm. and he he was the bottleneck guy and the finger pick guitar guy, and, and so this you know, and then he was also 
that uh, the first uh, uh, electric right hooter album with uh, with that Stratocaster with the you know with the, the Cooter Caster, yeah, yeah, the Cooter Caster, you know, and and I said this, you know, this this is really good. This is this is fantastic, and played in this band and did all the stuff, and and we played the No Nukes concert and oh, yeah. and uh, and did all that stuff. I had done. At that point, I had done a couple of uh, movie sessions uh-huh. for him in in, uh, in Walter Hill. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. The Long Riders and yeah, and, that uh, and all that stuff. We did that. <clears throat> you know, just you know, by the seat of our pants. Can you tell me like what what that means? Like, did you have the movie playing in front of you, and you were? Yeah, yeah, and we played to riffing it. off of that. Yeah, okay. yeah, we, we the movie would be playing, and we played to it. Improvising, or or were you playing playing pieces? That no, I was all, and... all was imp- improvising, and then and then if he hit on something that was really good, he says, "Oh, Rye would say, oh, do that.' Okay, do that a bunch. Okay, I said, okay. So he he went into the scoring of those movies basically with a blank slate. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, okay. He said, "Yeah, he said he would say, you know, oh, we got this one, one thing for for the uh, for Geronimo. Say, let's let's take Geronimo." I said, "We have this one thing," and I I started to to write a whole a bunch of different things around this uh-huh. based on on Methodist hymnal. Oh. So you you go in the you go in there and you play. Uh, we went into the sound stage and they had all these these regular musicians. Yeah. Sid Page and, and he had a string section and and all this stuff and they would play sh- like shape note singing, but with instruments and they yeah. would do all the brass. Uh, uh, they they did this stuff. It was old sounding, uh-huh. and then then we do the the string band things, yeah. and they they sounded old too. You know, yeah. he said, "Don't yeah. play bluegrass." Right. I remember that. I said, "Don't." He, he said, "Don't play bluegrass." Okay. So I and I when I was playing mandolin, so tricky. I play, and I played. Yeah, it's 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 different. It's a kind of different approach. And then with the long riders, that was one of those things where you sit and you watch the track and you'd play. Okay. Just go, yeah, go from this number right here. And it would, there would be numbers on the screen up above. Go from this number to 2001, you know, at at the end end of the thing. So, you know, just play something, play something good and interesting in there. (laughs) Okay. And, and, And it'll work. What about instrument selection? Like, were you just picking randomly, or did he say, like, why don't you play the bazooki here or something? I, yeah, well, he he knew exactly what he wanted. You know, mm-hmm. he he kind of <clears throat> checked things out, and and then if it it was um, if it was something else, he you know, I said, well, that'll work good, but bazooki is has a little bit, you know, the strings aren't as tight right. as a mandolin, so bazooki will work really well here. Check this out. So I would play it, and he would go. He said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's good. The octaves, <laughs> yeah. those octave strings on there. That's what we want." So, and I said, "Yeah." So we would use that instead of mandolin. Cool. And and then I then we got into all those things, and then we got into the 
the Turkish uh, classical instruments, the yali tambour and the tambour and the and saws and and all of those things, and and it's this we make use of these. This is a good thing. I was also doing uh, soundtracks with James Horner at the same time. Which ones were you doing with him? Willow. Oh, really? Yeah, there was that, and there yeah. there was a couple other things that I would do with James. That yeah. he he was the soundtrack guy. Right. Yeah, that's big time. So he he called me up and he said, "Come on over," and 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 it was it'd be a session where we look at the screen and play. Yeah. He says this, you know, and I also uh, I remember going to England doing that the same thing. Look at the screen and play with this Irish traditional band. Yeah. And, uh, would James Horner say, play this, like give you a line to play? Or was he just like, play, be Dave? And No, he was, he said, go up the neck. You know, I said, oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's, it may not be in tune. He said, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> okay. I want it not in tune. Okay. Wow. That's good. And he, he was, he was, a, he was tremendous. That, that whole soundtrack yeah. thing just kind of took off. And, uh, and, with Rye, it was <clears throat> kind of the same approach. Um, it, it was a different thing in those days, you know. And I think uh, James heard that I had been doing stuff with Rye, and they wanted that kind of thing. And the, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I never know. Do you think Rye wanted you around because you were like in the same ballpark as him, and it maybe made him feel more comfortable? Yeah, yeah, it, it, there could have been that too, really, because we we came from the Ashgrove, and we would go every night and see the same people, and and uh, you know McCabe's Guitar Shop and all that yeah. stuff, and we would um, we were kind of reading from the same hymnal, you know. Right. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. What about what about Jack Nietzsche? Did you work with him on soundtracks? Yeah, yeah, I worked with him on, on a couple of them. And what, what was uh, that like? Oh, that was that was wonderful. He would uh, he'd use the same approach, and and then it would work out. Uh, sometimes it wouldn't work out, and he yeah. he would end up doing it on piano. You know, okay. And, and he was great. It was wonderful working with Jack. He was he was uh, he's the same kind of thing. He he was he was one of those improvisational musicians. Yeah. You could get all kinds of things out of there, you know, and and he would do, you know, playing live to the, to the screen, go from yeah. this number to this number. Okay, in fact, he he was one of the people who showed me how to do that. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, and he he was, uh, yeah, he, he he knew how to do it the regular way, conducting an orchestra and. Yeah, because he was totally fluent in 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 orchestras, and yeah, that was his vibe. Oh right? yeah, scoring and doing and all that stuff. I mean, it, you look at a score, you know, for this or for that, and, and you know, and he gave me a, a sheet of paper that said, you know, it just had a clef on it. Yeah, it, it was a piece of music paper that just had a clef <laughs> on it. And, 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 a, and a key, and the key was was D. Yeah. So you know, and it said Weisenborn. And I went, oh, okay. Cool. You know. Blank page. Right on. Yeah, that's my kind of shit. That well, I can do that. Did it, Did you ever show up to a session and have somebody stick a, a chart in front of you with notes that they wanted you to play? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. And how'd you deal with that? That was Mike Post. 
He's a, Mike Post is an old friend, and he's, he did the Hill Street Blues. And, sure, yeah. And, you know, all kinds of, of television scores and stuff. And he, he and I go way, way, way back. Really? And, and uh, he taught himself how to, how to do all that stuff. Amazing. And he got an orchestrator and, and started working with him, Pete Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he... He he would you know I I go into every once in a while I go you know play the fiddle on on something and play it all scratchy and weird and and he says I, I remember this time he says he stopped the the orchestra and he say Mister Lindley don't you like what we wrote for you <laughs> I said I don't know what this stuff is you know he he, he started laughing he had stopped you know a little bit. And Mike, it was really wonderful working with Mike. I, I did some soundtracks and stuff with him, and it was for TV uh-huh. music. And yeah. and it was very difficult to to go from one world to another. Right, totally different approach from what you were used to, I guess. It's a totally different approach, and it, and it's like it, it's it's just as good, if not better. Right. When you, when you write the stuff out and you want it to be a certain thing. Yeah. And and he was familiar with what I played, and and he would write it, and it wasn't, it wasn't alien, it wasn't, and it wasn't like impossible to play, yeah. But but it was, uh, and he knew what to do. And there were a lot of times where, where I, I make it all the way through, and I you know, and it worked fine. Uh-huh. So it, it was just that one time I I remember you know. The guy coming like, around. You don't like what we wrote for you. <laughs> yeah, you got a guy come around. He's got an armload of the, of these sheets, yeah. and they have all these golf clubs on them. And he sticks one in front of you, and I said, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> I don't do that. That's not uh, part of my job description. So, I, and I, I said, "Oh, let me try. I'll try it." <clears throat> so I would I would kind of do stuff, and I I do it different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't like that. Mike, That's hilarious. No, no, no. I, I, it, it had to be the regular thing. He says, it's easy. You can do it. Uh-huh. You know, I, I said, really? I said, <laughs> I, I'm old. You know? <laughs> it's, I, I, yeah, I, I automatically kind of close things off when someone says it's easy. Right, you know? right. Oh, it's easy. Easy for you, asshole. You can do that. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do that, you know, and it was one of those things where I I decided at one point in my life to go the other way, Mm -hmm. which was the, uh, you know, Nachati Celek. I want to, I want to learn to play like Munir Bashir. Mm -hmm. That's who I want to learn to play like. I want to learn to play like Munir Bashir with no time, no drums and just the instrument, just the oud. Yeah. I'll do I'll do that for a few years, and, and that was one of those things, you know. I, I'll, and, and sitting there, you know, with the world's greatest French horn player, this guy had played with the L.A. Philharmonic. He was a monster. This guy, and he he, he ended up playing things, and it was just phenomenal. And he mm-hmm. he he came by, he came by and said, "It's okay. That's you know, I I know what you're doing." You know, and it, this this guy was really cool. He helped you through it. Yeah, yeah. He was he was <laughs> interested. He's interested in the folk process, 
You know, yeah. a lot of people, the the folk process, and then the the sight reading and right. and all that. It's yeah, yeah. You do have to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, man. Um, if you have time, I would love to talk to you just a bit about your um, your duo partnerships with the, the, all those great records with Henny Nasser and Wally Ingram later. Um, those for me, like as I was saying, like I you know I I heard the El Rayo acts and that was a big thing for me, but but as I was getting into playing those instruments that you play and like learning those things, I first heard that live Hanny Nasser record and it totally like yeah. cha- changed my life. Um, oh, wow. Can you tell me about just like what made you want to go out on, on tour with somebody like that, where you found them and, and what your intention was with that? You hear him play, you know, you hear yeah. Hanny play. He came over to the house one day and he was playing with Ian Beardsley. He's a flamenco guitarist. Yeah, and, sure. And, and I, this, I said, this is really good. And I said, you want to go out on the road? He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to go out on the road. And so we went out and did gigs. And I, I said, you, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and I showed him a bunch of things. I showed him the New Orleans stuff and the reggae stuff, and he, and he could play it. Yeah. I said, oh, that's good. So we went out on the road for, for a few years. Was that was that like four or five years or something? You were, you did stuff with him. Yeah, more like four years, three three okay. or four years with Hanny, and then and then I I hooked up with with Wally Ingram, and that was more like what I kind of intended in the first place was kind of pots and pans and and, and right, that yeah, kind he was of, hitting all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah, and I said, yeah, that's good, that's good, okay. just do that, and then I'll <laughs> I'll play and you play, and then and it'll be good. Was he a guy that you knew from playing around LA? That's where he's from, right? Yeah, he had, he had played with Jackson, and I remember oh, okay. uh, I remember a, a live concert where he he played with and Barbara Kay and Pat McDonald played, and I said this guy's really good. He also played with Jackson. He sat in with Jackson, played absolutely appropriate stuff, and he played yeah. appropriate stuff with the Timbuk Three. And I said, "You want to go out on the road?" And he said, "Yeah, that'd yeah. be good." And and so he and I, you know, I, I called him one day and said, you want to go out on the road? And he said, yeah. And so we, we did. And, right on. And it worked out real good. It sure did. Well, those records are so great sounding too. Like, did you, was it always intended for it to just be a live thing? Like you never did studio records with either of those guys, right? Yeah. I kind of, well, the, the live recording of me and Hanny, mm-hmm. uh, that was, um, yeah, I, I just said, well, let's record this. And then I listened to it and I said, this is a record. Yeah. And then with Wally, it was more a studio thing. And he and I would do, we'd do it live and then I'd put extra, we'd put extra stuff on it. Oh, right. Okay. The, that's the Twango Bango record. Yeah. It was all, all of that stuff was always recorded live and it worked out. It worked out really well. And, and then we'd overdub stuff. I mean, I would overdub, you know, I, I, I do it usually with an electric guitar with a Dan Electro. Oh, okay. So over top of the live recording, you you overdubbed. Yeah, that's cool. And there was that, and then we would do the whole song. We, if it was a Weisenborn thing, I mean, I'd record Weisenborn, and then he would record drums, and we'd be in the same room, and it, and it worked out really good. And so, in the last few years, I know you've mostly been doing solo stuff. Is that just a like another choice that you made where you you felt like 
you were getting your point across better or was it like, I know you've had ear problems too. Was it like a volume issue or where? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a tinnitus thing where it's a, you know, a constant ringing in both yeah, ears. Man. Oh. And, and that's what I, I, it's, it's really pervasive in the, in the industry. I mean, yep. Jeff Beck and, in uh, Pete Townsend and, and yep. Eric Clapton and, and, uh, a whole lot of different people that played really loud at yeah. one time. You know, we did all that and, and, you know, and then now we have issues. So that's, it kind of goes with the territory, you know, yeah. I, yeah. and I look at it like that, but it's also, you go out, you go out and, and you can get your point across better when you do it by yourself. Yeah. You can, you know, and there's no conflicting, thing about you know keep them dancing and doing right. all this stuff yeah you don't have to do that and they, they sit there uh-huh. they sit and they, they like it a lot but they they sit there and they they check it out and then and i'm playing a little bit differently now too so mm-hmm. so are you actively in the middle of touring right now or are you taking a break or what's your no, I, I took a break for about a year and I'm, I'm about to go out and do do a few things and and see how it works and yeah. And uh, it's kind of testing the waters, and, and I think it'll work pretty well. So I'm, I, I may fire it up again and, and, and go out and do the whole thing. So Do you have to adjust like what you're do- like your rig and stuff to be just like on a quieter setting overall? Yeah. Okay. Constant adjustment. Yes. Yes. It, it's okay. what it is. Yeah. And the uh, all the different tunes. I've, I've written some original stuff, and I'm, I'm doing all that. And I'm oh, cool. right. I'm right in the middle of a CD, and uh, oh. I, I've done seven tunes. I got to do seven more, and then. You what know. can you tell me about that record? Oh well, it's just in keeping it biblical. See, I've <laughs> done seven tunes, yeah. and then do seven more. Yeah. So yeah, uh, solo stuff, or is it a, a band, or what's the it's solo stuff. Well, it's both. You know, oh, okay. it, it, it depends on what the song needs to have. But but I, I'm keeping all the tunes open. You know, this you know, maybe two of them will be completely just guitar. You know, yeah. and then then maybe uh, I'll, I'll do uh, a taxim on on the oud and and uh, one on the bazooki and. I've taken a bazooki and and put uh, sauce frets on it. Wow! Yeah, so that's so instead of four instead of three strings, you have four strings. Right. And, and you can uh, lower like if there's a lower set. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay. So it's it's like two instruments uh, on one, right. and, and and that's the way I play it. So. There's that, and then there's the Weisenborns, and and uh, I've I've got a couple of other instruments here that are, um, you know, and I may do some guitar stuff. I may I may just do the some of these songs on guitar. Beautiful. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, I think I think it'll work out pretty well. I, I have a couple of, of guitars that are real good. I got a a uh, a um, Saga, it's a copy of uh, uh, Mario Nakaferi. Uh-huh. Um, guitar of the Django Reinhardt played, you know? Sure, yeah. Yeah, there are two of them. There's the oval sound hole, and then there's the 
the D shaped sound hole. I have a D shaped sound hole one. And I, I've been, uh, you know, checking it out, and there's the. That's uh, that's a Yali Tambor. Okay. Which is a banjo. Amazing. So it's back to the banjo. Good. Full circle, man. Yeah. Yeah, it works out good. Chumbush, and man, there's a lot of Chumbush on this this album. Chumbush is a is a twelve string fretless banjo. Right. And it um, it it's tuned like an oud, and and you kind of play it like an oud, and it and it really sounds wonderful. It it sounds great. So I've I'm, seen I'm, I've seen you play that before. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a monster. Right that thing. Yeah, man, I could talk to you all day, but I, I I can't thank you enough for for taking the time, man. Yeah, it's it's, it's a pleasure. It's, you you know you seem to know what you're talking about, and that that's the main thing because sometimes <laughs> I do it uh, an interview or uh, kind of talk or something like that, and and the person doesn't know what they're talking about, but you do. There's so. nothing worse than that. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you, man. <laughs> all right, thanks so much for listening, everybody. That was part one and part two combined episodes of my conversation with david lindley from 2019 thanks for tuning in go listen to some david lindley thanks very much we'll see you next season thank you for listening everybody the music makers and soul shakers podcast was recorded in nashville tennessee at the hen house studio you can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca as always i would like to thank jeremy holmes in vancouver bc for his help with research and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of music makers and soul shakers (laughs) 